0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want To Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have William Sitwell on, who is a food critic. Hi William, how are you? Hi, I'm very
1: well, thank you. Nice to speak to you.
0: And you, thank you for coming on. Um, So how did you get into the world of food critic?
1: Gosh. um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, there's a very, um, there's a a short version uh, to this story. And also there's a sort of long version. I mean, I... I became the restaurant critic um, for The Telegraph literally within days of leaving a job that I had had for about 20 years as editor of a magazine for Waitrose called Waitrose Food and I'd worked for a company called John Brown Media and I was lucky to be, to be sort of scooped up after I quit that job um, but uh, I, I suppose it was a sort of long time, long-term time, long coming in that I'd been writing about food for about, for about 20 years, been a journalist for a bit longer. Um, I'd sort of fallen into the, the food sphere, if you like, um, by luck or, you know, mistake or good fortune, whatever you want to call it. Um, so my name was out there. I had lots of writing experience. Um, so I suppose in a way it took me sort of 30 years to get that job. Um, and there aren't many jobs as restaurant critics, um, and if you think, you know, if you're thinking about kind of official, tele, uh, you know, if you're thinking about official newspapers, um, Charles Campion used to say, "There's, you know, that there are more F1 drivers on the grid than there are mainstream restaurant critics." So it's quite a tough, yeah, uh, you know, challenge to get those jobs. But um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a scribbler who found a subject and stuck with it, really.
2: Yeah, I always find it interesting journalists who sort of focus on something and have that as like their passion. You can sort of bring two things together. So, how did you actually just fall into uh, being a food critic?
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I one of my early jobs was as a journalist on the on the Sunday Express, and when I was in my kind of early twenties. Kind of looking around for something to do. Really, I mean, I'd I'd been a rep on a Greek island for a travel company. I'd been a minicab driver. Um, I'd I'd had some terrible job in an accounts department. If I think it was Top Shop and got sort of sacked off to the first day. <laughs> I'd done various sort of jobs, and, and and I kind of thought that I wanted to be in the media. Um, I used to have a column on the on our student newspaper at university, and I had a little radio show. And and I sort of felt that that was definitely my sort of the area that I wanted to go in. And and um, I come from a family of writers, whether that's of any help or not, I don't know. And I remember actually, I was introduced to a very senior executive at News International. He's a guy called Andrew Knight, um, who was a friend of a... Um, uh, his, his friend was the father of pa, old oh, pal of mine. And I went to see him and he said, you know if you want to get ahead in the media, you need to get a subject. You need to become an expert on that. And he sort of said, you know, you need to be the go-to man about beer or something. And I sort of thought, well, I don't know anything about anything. How am I (laughs) going to find a subject that I know something about? I mean, I have a sort of, I'm interested in politics. I studied politics at university, but I didn't think I was about to become a political correspondent. I'd done some work on sort of newspaper diaries. And it was only later that, I I kind of fell into food and then found a subject and then stuck at it. And then retrospectively, I suppose I'd taken on this wonderful advice, but it had taken me a good 10 years. And I suppose I got into food journalism when um, I knew someone had suggested that I went for a job as deputy editor of this magazine, Waitrose Food Illustrated. And this was before it had done a tie-up with, um, with, with, with Waitrose. Waitrose. It was just called Food Illustrated at that point. Mm. Anyway, and I'd been... Um, where was I at the, Where was I at the time? Oh, I was languishing um, at a magazine called Woman's Journal as features editor. And the new editor, there was this, this wonderful woman called Marcel Dargy Smith had um, recruited me as a favourite to someone else because I was, again, I'd, I'd lost my job on the Sunday Express. Um, and, uh, this new editor turned up and looked at me and thought, what are you doing on this magazine? You're a, <laughs> this is a magazine for women in their forties. The features are about how to date again after your divorce. And I was a sort of 23 year old, 24 year old. And, and I kind of looked at that and I went, yeah, I have no idea why I'm here. Also, unfortunately this opportunity came up and I, I, I interviewed for this deputy editorship role on a magazine that I have to say I'd never heard of, and I got the job. And somehow um, it was a funny interview because this this woman who I worked for, she was a great editor called Katie Hillier, but she she talked a lot. And I remember she said to me at the beginning of the interview, "So tell me about your tell me about your interest in food." And I said, "Well, I eat," and I was going to I was going to expand on that, but she sort of she just went off on one and talked at me for an hour, and I and so. I, <laughs> I hadn't explained my credentials, my interest in food at all, um, but I got the job, so I must have been a good listener.
2: Mm. <laughs> and so you said you studied politics at universities. How did you go from politics into the sort of journalism role?
1: Well, yeah, my, um, I did some politics and government at University of Kent, and this was a subject that I was fascinated by, and I loved it, and I studied a bit of American politics, um i studied uh, the power of the media how the media worked in britain and how media and politics uh connect and the power of of people in media and and the links with politics etc etc and um these things really fascinated me although i'd actually gone to university to study social anthropology and i realized very quickly this was an error because i wasn't really interested in um I don't know, strange activities in the Mbuti tribe and somewhere I would no idea where. And I just didn't, I just, I think I'd managed just to fluke this subject to get into Kent. I was, I was a lazy schoolboy and I somehow managed to persuade someone to give me university education. So anyway, um, I had a, I was doing a, uh, I had an option to study politics. And after the first year, I just thought, well, I'm going to switch from my option, you know, from the main and do that as my main thing. So, I, I sort of, uh, yeah. I, so I did politics and media and and left with a with a degree, a what we used to call a, a Desmond, you know, two two, a kind of unremarkable degree. It didn't go. To my, <laughs> I didn't go to my graduation ceremony. I didn't think I was worthy of any form of educational award. To be honest because I hadn't done very much but sit in a pub and <laughs> make friends. Um, and I did go to lectures, I suppose. Um, but anyway, um, so I sort of scratched around for a while, got this job as a, I'm trying to think really, I used to, I did shifts on various diaries. So I turned up at the, at the Evening Standard and did a shift and they sort of sent me off to some parties where I had to speak to celebrities and write down things they said and try and formulate it into a, A small block of text that was a story and I did a similar thing at the Telegraph on what was then called the Peterborough column for um, Quentin Letts who was the editor and then Robert Hardman who are obviously very distinguished journalists now so I kind of bobbed around doing diary work and I have to say retrospectively that that was incredibly good experience because if you can write a diary story it you can encapsulate a story it's got to have a beginning a middle and end it's got to have people it's got to have quotes it's got to have color but it can't be over the top and it's got to be straight but it's got to have a sense of of um enough color and spirit to drag to drive your interest in through reading it so actually writing diary copy is probably some of the 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 greatest experience I had to become to later become a writer and an editor because it was about encapsulating information succinctly Um, So, yeah, I did kind of diary work, and then, funnily enough, I got a job in politics. I used to work for an MP called Bill Cash, and he was. this was during the Maastricht rebellions when the major government was at a knife edge of of these knife-edge votes night after night as the Tory rebels um, tried to defeat them on Maastricht. And Bill Cash was the sort of leader of the rebels, and I came back from Greece and managed to get a job in his office. And I ended up being his kind of PA and used to sort of scan the press for him and give him the bits I thought were interesting. And so I helped, I helped work with him and we had a huge uh, an enjoyment. It was a wonderful time. And actually it was while I was there that I met a guy called Charles Lewington, who was then political editor of the Sunday Express. Mm. He asked me about, you know, what I was up to. And and I said, well, I'd love to work on a newspaper. And he got me an interview a magazine called classic which was one of the color supplements for the sunday express and i got a job as a researcher and then i became from researcher i started writing features at the paper and so that was my first sort of job on a newspaper and so, yeah so writing
0: these diary um, uh, blogs and, and whatnot how how difficult or was that quite daunting for you to begin writing because it's not an easy skill set to develop is it
1: no i think really also in terms of my skills to write, there was a wonderful man called Barnaby Lennon who ended up being the headmaster of Harrow and now is a kind of... He's a very key player in, in, in the independent um, public school sector. And he taught me geography. And he taught me how to write an essay. He taught me about structure, mm. taught me about how to begin, middle, end, summarize, think succinctly. And I, Barnaby Lennon taught me how to... He taught me how to learn, really. I have to say, it was... That sort of structured learning and structured essay writing, the technique of writing an essay and being lucid and um, and being clear, he he talked the important he talked so much about the importance of technique of essay writing, and that actually was very useful in terms of journalistic pieces when it, you know in later life. So that coupled, I suppose, with that diary writing experience and then being in the newsroom of a Sunday paper, which was pretty lively being sent on stories and you know I never had any training I mean there are people who you know go to journalism college or start off on the regions I kind of did you know diary work and managed to you know get a job on a paper and I suppose you just learn on the hoof really you know you see people attack your copy and knock it into shape and you gradually learn and you know when there's huge pressure and you learn to write fast um it's a great it's a great steep learning curve and it was it was great fun I mean I've been I was sent on the most ridiculous stories I was the kind of office stunt man I was always having to dress up <laughs> as people in <laughs> person you know if there was a job that no one else would do Sitwell was sent off and I you know I sent off to scour the streets of Tewkesbury dressed as Barbara Cartland with some with pretend me ch- chihuahuas with me I had to dress up and pretend to be Liam Gallagher squag swaggering through London I had to um invade uh top secret fashion shoots um you know so I was sent on all these sort of stunts and sort of would be I don't know under an experience though reporting jobs yeah and I have to say years later when I was editing a magazine a food magazine and I was sending some young scribbler off to interview a farmer and they grumbled I sort of thought come on You have no idea (laughs) how easy these jobs are. And the other thing is, because I worked in a newspaper and we had to write to deadline, under pressure, in a noisy office, quickly, I've always been able to write wherever I am. I mean, apart from if there's music playing, which diverts me, but I can, you know, I I write very, very quickly and I can write with noise around me. And that's something that I that i've learned over the years and i'm quite proud of actually i do bash out copy quite fast and i'm quite efficient and i tend to write copy that doesn't need to be you know hacked away at
2: getting your uh, first job um as a food critic at the uh, the wait at waitros, um did you sort of go on a crash course or anything to to learn more about um
1: food and critiquing it I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't hired as a food critic. I was hired as a deputy editor of this magazine that became Waitrose Food Illustrated. So I was a journalist working on a food magazine, and so my job was to deputise the editor and help run this magazine and write stuff and proof pages and give it direction to the art department and come up with ideas and so on. So, and and then I got the job as editor a few years later, when the editor quit and I, I you know, I fought and got that job. I mean, it was i remember that period i realized that this was an incredibly important path for me that i either went for this job and didn't get it so i went for the job and got it or i didn't get it and then i was second in command to someone who beat me to a job and i was a sort of i just saw a miserable future if i didn't get this job so i put everything into it i fought really hard for it i did a really good presentation and i persuaded them to you know to to hire to hire me um So I I became editor of this magazine, which I then ran for 17, 18 years or something. And meanwhile, I got other bits and pieces, other sort of jobs here and there. And I started to do bits of radio, started to do bits of television, did a show called Great Food Live that Jenny Barnett used to present on UK TV. I started doing bits of radio and then MasterChef popped up. I can't remember the first time I was asked to go on it, but they obviously were trying out people and I turned up and you know, was on that show, and I suppose 15, 16, 17, I don't know how many years later, I'm still doing it. So I suppose someone gives you a go somewhere. Um, in terms of being a critic, I suppose I've learnt over the years to see something, think about something, work out how to convey what I think in, in terms of language that are easy to understand and maybe entertaining, color. It's all the same sort of techniques as writing those diary columns, I suppose. Um, so, you know, food criticism was never something that I went into, and it was something I sort of drifted into as an adjunct to my main job, which was being a magazine editor. So, the world of, of journalism
0: and food critique is very much, you know, food critic is part of the world of journalism. For someone working in the industry, what is an average day like? You know, what are you actually doing in the
1: world of journalism? Well, well, right now, my life is very different. So if you ask me now, you know, I'm I'm in, I'm, I'm in Somerset. Restaurants are shut. <laughs> yeah, I'm desperately, desperately trying to feel good about the future. Um, I, I've i become, you know, so, you know, for many years, I, I was a, I, I was editorial director of John Brown Media and I ran the magazine for Waitrose and I pitched and launched magazines for food brands around the world and i worked very closely with um my then boss and my friend andrew hirsch who ran the company and we we pitched for we pitched to supermarkets globally and ran their content programs some of some of which are still going we were very successful when when we won some and we we lost some so that was a day job that i had for many years Um, now i'm a freelance so i i um you know, my my life is very varied. I mean, in normal times, I'm in London, maybe a couple of days a week. Um, I do quite a number of things because I do TV and radio and podcasts. I I have a a wine shop called Williams House Wines, which I launched in lockdown. Um, I write books. um, And I consult on various projects here, there and everywhere. And then I visit restaurants. So in normal times, I'll certainly eat professionally once a week in a restaurant, um, but I might also have meetings and eat in other places. Um, funny enough, when I was working for Wait- at Waitrose for Illustrated, I probably ate in a restaurant two or three times a day. But wow. now that I'm down in the countryside and life's slightly quieter because we can't, you know, travel anywhere, life's different. So in lockdown. My life is also dictated to by our small children. So I have, well, I have older teenagers. I've got Barney who's eight. So that means we get up at seven with <laughs> and he's two. And so we have breakfast together. So a lot of my day is also dictated to by my, our small children. Yeah. And I work in between. So, um, you know, life is very different now. I used to have a team of, you know, maybe 16, 17 people. I used to schmooze and network. Day and night. Now it's different, and but I can't wait for that for that life to return in in some shape or form. In in terms of, you know, it's very hard when you're a kind of entrepreneurial journalist like mm. I am. You're running little businesses, little projects, and you're doing it, you know, from the middle of the Somerset countryside, um, and you can't meet people. It's really hard, actually, you know, because because life is about schmoozing and networking and making connections and building on those connections and trying to turn connections into financial reward. I was, I was going to say, actually, how important
0: is the building of your network to, the, to this career?
1: It's 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 huge, actually. Um, partly it's something that comes instinctively and naturally anyway, because I am quite gregarious and social and I like making friends. Um, and some of the friends that I've made are people that I end up working with, either as colleagues or in a sort of, you know, client-agency um, uh, relationship. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very important. It's very important, and it is who you know to some extent because you've got to get in and you've got to fight to get in network. It's also what you know, obviously, because you've got to be able to deliver the goods.
0: Have you That's got what... any tips or anything to to help people network that you've used
1: over the years? <laughs> um, I don't know, just have a sort of instinctive ability to talk complete cack and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and try and amuse people so that they remember <laughs> you. I mean, I think that there's nothing worse than pure networking events where people are literally sort of hoovering up contacts in order to make money. Because... You know, human beings are social animals. We want to be entertained and enjoy ourselves. And if we can mix that, mix that with business, so much the better. I mean, I have to say, I think the food industry is a wonderful industry because those of us who work in it, whether we're writing or whether we're a farmer or whether we're a restaurateur or whether we're a chef or whether we're any part of that network, you are so immersed in it that you do end up making great friends within that business. Um and friends for life who can also become people who you who you work with and I think it's an extraordinary business to be in for that reason because it's social because at its heart it's about breaking bread eating drinking talking passionately about the things that that motivate us for good or ill the fact that you break bread with people um, is a wonderful way of you way know, into sort of doing business with people as well so you can do business with people over the table but those people can also become great friends so i have people i work with do business with who are who have become phenomenal friends and it does mean it's hard for critics like me and social animals like me and so many of us in this business whether you're a chef or a writer you know we'd like to go to new restaurant we'd like to socialize this 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 year is torture for those reasons and it is hard to build those 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 networks and you know if you think about young people trying to get into the business i mean how do you get in how do you get into newspapers how do you get into magazines if you're not how do you how do you get into pr
0: mm.
1: you can't flag your way into those parties and those launches in order to make contacts with those commissioning editors all those pr people how are you going to get into those worlds? Because not everything is advertised. Stuff is advertised, but often people like to recruit people that they know either because they've bumped into them or because they've been recommended. And, you know, it's by no means a closed shop, but you always like to hire someone um, from a from a personal recommendation. It's so mm-hmm. difficult, the whole process of recruiting, you know, interviewing and so on and, and trying to fight your... You know your first instinctive thoughts about someone, and trying to work out if is is this the right person? Do I want to hire them? And if they come with a recommendation, it does make life easier.
2: You've uh, you've alluded to a few already, but what would be some personality traits that you've seen yourself and other journalists around you that really help uh, you thrive in that industry? Um,
1: um, I, t- I think. I think having a sense of humor and enjoying yourselves and being gregarious and outgoing is is really important. I don't think there's much room in, for being just a miserable food critic. Uh, and, but also, I'm. It depends what you do. I mean, if the only th- if you were paid so well as a restaurant critic that you wouldn't need to do anything else, then you could be a miserable bastard who just went out ate, and <laughs> grumbled, and wrote about it spectacularly well and beautifully. But because restaurant criticism cannot sustain my life and all the uh, ankle biters that are around me <laughs> uh i have to do other things and life is a struggle financially i have to say right now mm. so um it's important because you know i'm i you know i've learned that you have to sell um and i sell wine and i have to sell copy i have to sell podcasts So the ability to sell, I mean, if you want to be a freelance writer, you've got to be an entrepreneur. You've got to realise that you're running your own business. The other thing that I wish someone had told me sort of 30 years ago is that if you're going to be a wage slave for 20 years, you've got to remember when you come out of it at the other end, you won't have anything unless you've taken investment in the company. And I think if you can start your own thing, or even on the side, as young as possible so that you have ownership in some part of a business that you can then grow, that that will pay dividends in the end if it works.
0: Mm.
1: Whereas if you're just a slave to the PAYE and the company, I mean, great, you could have a wonderful life, but when you, when you come out of it, you're not going to have anything, any capital. I wish someone had told me that.
0: <laughs> I think that's great advice.
1: And I also wish that someone at school, had someone had sort of taught us about the absolute fundamental need to be an entrepreneur to understand some idea of business to be able to pitch to be able to you know I've learned on my own how to stand up and speak in public and how to talk to groups of people and how to present but presentation pitching and it's so much more important these days because of the digital world and of course lockdown those moments when you actually do meet someone face to face or you you know you do need to have an ability to convey and speak with clarity and order and lucidity. And if you haven't been able to teach that to yourself and you haven't been trained in that, then you will struggle that, that, you know, these real moments of eye contact are are more important than ever. And I wish they, I wish I'd been taught some semblance of business skills at
2: school. Are there any other skills that you think um, would have helped you in your career that,
1: weren't um, as obvious. No, I'd like to have been a sort of learn how to rob banks and, <laughs> and escape without anyone knowing. So you yeah, had to be a sort of digital thief or something. That would have been quite handy. <laughs> I'm a thief, but um, um, no, I don't know. I mean, I've done all right. And, you know, uh, I, you know I can write, I write books. I, I do what I do, writing and broadcasting. And actually it's all the things that you've learned along the way that make you what you are and help and and help formulate the person that you are. Mm. So it's all very well looking back and saying, I wish I'd been taught that, but actually when you taught it yourself and you've learned it yourself, it's probably, probably better in a way. Although Mm. as I I wish I'd had a grounding in business, although I have to say I can't add up. So (laughs) there's probably a reason why I didn't do any business courses because I'm completely inept when it comes to figures and numbers. Although I have learned that in order to make money, you need to buy something for one price, sell it for something else and make sure there's a margin. Yeah, <laughs> so that I, helps. <laughs> I have learned that. And I'm actually, I mean, I do now have a calculator on my desk, which is not what <laughs> I had 20, 30 years ago.
0: Um, what would be some of the biggest positives and opportunities you've had out of this, of this career so far?
1: Um. Positives. I mean, I've won awards, which is great. I won awards as Editor of the Year awards and various awards from the BSMEs, the PPAs, which are the Oscars of magazine journalism, which I'm very proud of. Um, the things that I'm immensely proud of are the achievements I had at John Brown of of pitching magazines overseas and winning business. That I found hugely satisfying. I think I'm deeply proud of the books that I was commissioned to write and have written, and I've written a few, some of which have been translated around the world. So um, I suppose I'm very proud of the books that I've written. Um, I'm very proud of Anarchy, which was this extraordinary story of how Lord Walton fed Britain in the Second World War, which I still think more people should read. Oh wow! Um, and this was a story that had never been written before based on all of the food minister's diaries that had never been seen before and his wife's diaries that had never been seen before. Mm. So I think some of my... And I suppose also because my family are writers and my grandfather wrote 130-plus books. Oh, wow. The fact that I've had two or three fills me with pride. Mm. Um, but it's also, you know, it's a bit... I don't sort of sit and think about these things because I'm just constantly panicking about what's going to happen next and where the next... <laughs> avalanche of money is going to pour in um i'm slightly at the moment as to where 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 i'm going to have to stem the flow of cash yes slightly worried it's not going to happen so well uh, i I also you know i run supper clubs as well and this is an absolute key part of my income and of course completely dried up at the moment so i mean uh, you know as soon as life gets back to normal i'm itching to get going again but Mm. But uh,
0: yeah. Well, when we were obviously doing a bit of research about you and your career, like the the opportunities in this world of journalism be able to write and get into a world like food. I mean, you mentioned it. You're very entrepreneurial, and you've got you know you've got that cider, the three C's that you you co-founded, and you talked about the wine wine club you do. And it's really once you get in something and, and build a network, like you say, um, the opportunities are quite vast, aren't they?
1: Well, I'd like to think they are. It doesn't feel like it right now, but then Mm. I'm feeling slightly gloomy and depressed (laughs) (laughs) because we're looking at a a government that wants to sort of savagely pin us down with more tears and for some reason want to destroy the hospitality industry because it feels like the right thing to do Mm. for them from where they're sitting. So... Um, right now i don 't feel that way. I need to steel myself and convince myself that actually twenty twenty one could be an astonishing year once we already, once we are unleashed from captivity mm. um, but um you know i think i think i 've done i've put in quite a lot of groundwork this year for a for a good subsequent year. I would have thought and i'd like to think that I can grow my grow my wine business, which is really exciting me but also i 'm excited that restaurants can reopen and I can get back to doing my day job.
2: Definitely. And what would be some of the less favorable aspects of the industry?
1: Less favorable? Yes. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Having uh, death threat. Um, really yeah. gets that bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. There, oh was, there was
1: a guy who uh, didn't enjoy a restaurant I'd reviewed and um, started leaving a lot of threatening messages. He was foolish and that, every single message he either left in text or on voicemail or on email. So I catalogued them so that he couldn't then pretend that it hadn't happened and that I was the lunatic for inventing this. Oh, my Um, word. And I've, you know, I've suffered uh, the odd international incident. Um, uh, You know, so (laughs) I, I think that sort of i've I've felt the the very sharp end of social media mm. uh very viciously so some people may say it, I deserved it others i I don't know about you know when you appear on t v it's it's either the downside or the upside depending on your how you're feeling the the abuse you get Someone said the other day that um uh you yeah, know was it William Sitwell is a Weapons grade toff wanker, nothing would give me greater pleasure than watching him being eaten slowly by a shark. Oh my uh, word! I actually, <laughs> I actually thought that was so brilliantly written, and it must have been done by a friend of mine. <laughs> so, so, I think that, um, I think the so the, the tough end of the business can be the abuse you get, but you mustn't take it seriously. Um, uh, the tough end of the business is. I suppose just the endless pressure of weekly deadlines, that little bit of stress you constantly get, but it's that stress that drives you on and makes you write and makes you write a good piece. The constant terror of being unemployed, having your contract ended, keeps me fresh or you could say paranoid. Um, So, you know, I I don't rest on my laurels. I am hmm. constantly fighting to try and work to find new revenue streams because I'm not a salaried man anymore, but I'm, I'm actually probably really relishing this time in my life.
0: Mm. Well, we like to go away and and find about uh, research figures of average incomes for the industries we talk about and just see if you would agree with these figures. So for journalism, I'm sure it it varies in whichever field you're in, but uh, it seemed to range from between 25 to about a hundred thousand could be a, an
1: average income for journalism? Uh, it could be. You tell me. I don't know, really.
0: Well, those were the figures that were that we found from uh, quite a few sources.
1: No, um, I, think that, I think certainly when I worked at John Brown Media, you know, editorial assistants were on sort of 18 to 20. I would say probably features editors, probably on about 35, 40. Art directors, maybe 40, 45. Then senior editorial people might have been 60 plus. Mm. Um, similar... I suppose, people in the ad, to ad teams and then there were a few people who managed to push a little bit above that. So I do, I, that's probably not far off. Apart from
2: maybe the uh, the odds, shark-eating death threat, um, what would be something that's not in the uh, job description that you had to deal with?
1: That I've had to deal with?
2: Yeah, maybe just something every, every day that you weren't expecting to, to happen whilst you were in journalism. Um,
1: oh, God. Probably had so much fun.
0: Okay, that's a good
1: one. I mean, seriously, you know, in normal working life, the unbelievable pleasure I have from the friends that I've made, from breakfasts with PRs to lunches with contacts and dinners with people and drinks, the, the social aspect of this business is certainly not something that you see on the CV. Yeah, And I think that if you enjoy going out and meeting people, and you're in the food world and you're a food writer or you're in that sort of sphere, then, you know, if you are outgoing and extroverted and you like people, I think you can be an absolute blast. I have to say. And as I say, that's, that's not something that's in the job description. So maybe that answers your question.
0: It does. And what's your best piece of advice for anyone listening to this and thinking,
1: actually, I, I want to go at this. Well, if you want to be a food critic, if you want to be a restaurant critic, the most important thing is that you can become a writer. You have to be a journalist first. You've got to be able to construct a sentence. You've got to be able to think and write lucidly. You have to know how to construct a sentence, paragraphs, and entire pieces, and draw people through with the right amount of colour so that it's not over the top and your p- prose is not embarrassingly purple. You have to know how to write. And I would say, therefore, you have to know how to read, and you have to read, and you need to read, and not just newspapers and magazines, but books and some of the best writers out there. You know, whether they're English and British writers like Evelyn War and and um, P.G. Woodhouse, or they're you know writers like Toni Morrison, or you know the or older U.S. authors, uh, whether they're Aldous Huxley or whatever. I think you need to read and read and read and love the love. The descriptive powers of the English language, and if you've got that in you, then you can have a go at yourself of constructing sentences and trying to translate events into characterful, entertaining articles. Brilliant! And
2: uh, would you still go into the industry knowing everything you know now?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely! But I get a piece brilliant of action at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on, William. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you.
1: Lovely. It's been, uh, it's been fun thinking about all these things. I appreciate you having me on as a guest. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you very much.
2: Where can people find you on social media and uh, anything that you're up to?
1: Well, uh, at William Sitwell is my Instagram and my Twitter feed. My website is williamsitwell.com. My wine site is williamshousewines.com. But um, williamsitwell.com has full details of my the entirety of my food empire so that's a good starting point
2: brilliant thank you again so much fantastic thanks William thank you